Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 178 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining us for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, we're expanding our scope to include fermented beverages, in particular, cider. I had the great pleasure of chatting with authors and cider buffs Dan Pucci and Craig Cavallo, who are about to release a book that I am very excited about called American Cider. To me, it's the book that the American beverage world didn't know it desperately needed. It traces fermented apple beverages through the temporal and physical landscape of our nation and alerts us to cider trends and production legacies that are right here in our own backyards just waiting to be discovered. And guys, I know I'm way more excited about this than a grown man should be, but this book has maps, hand-illustrated, whimsical, yet informative maps. If you're down in the dumps about not being able to leave your home that much or travel during the pandemic, these beautiful little cartographies are perfect for giving your brain that little chemical rush that comes from imagining yourself in a new place. That, and they tell you where all the cider is, which is important. But before we part the sea of supermarket apples to make way for the sharp, sweet, and bitter cider varieties that are on the rise, let's take a moment so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Bicicleta, which we talk about during the lightning round for this interview. To make it, you'll need two ounces of Campari, two ounces of a dry white Italian wine like Pinot Grigio or Verdicchio, and some soda water to top it all off. The nice thing about the Bicicleta is that it's a built drink. You take your Campari and your wine, you pour them into a highball glass, add ice, top with sparkling water, and garnish with half an orange wheel. It's simple, delicious, and to the point. According to Punch, this spritz variation was named after the old Italian men on bikes who might have a hard time riding in a straight line as they return home from a few drinks at the bar during the afternoon. And although we might still be in winter's grasp here on the east coast of the US, there's no rule out there that says you can't fantasize about summer spritzes all year round. So now that you've got a drink in hand, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fruity fermented conversation with Craig Cavallo and Dan Pucci, authors of American Cider, some of the topics we discuss include how each of these gentlemen fell in love with apples and cider through their shared experiences in the New York hospitality scene and their happy proximity to the Hudson Valley, one of our nation's most prolific apple hubs. Why cider developed differently in America than it did in Europe, and how different geographic, cultural, and economic factors contributed to various dark ages and revivals in the apple world. Of course, we talk about different exciting apple varietals with cool names like Northern Spy and Black Twig, as well as the four different categories that all cider apples can be placed into. We explain the different decisions that cider makers encounter on their way to delicious ferments, including yeast, terroir, and naming conventions. We offer tips for sourcing excellent cider for your home bar, and even how to start experimenting with making your own cider, and of course, much, much more. We'll have a link in the show notes page that you can follow to order your copy of American Cider, which is going to be released in the next month or so. But while you're waiting for this book and all its beautiful little maps, I hope you enjoy this fascinating preview chat with authors Dan Pucci and Craig Cavallo. Dan and Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for here. Uh, so let's just start off here by having you both introduce yourselves so our listeners know a little bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Craig. I um, co-author with Dan on the book in question on American Cider. Um, quick background, Dan and I met in New York City working in food and beverage uh, restaurants, wine stores, and the like, and became fast friends. 
Um, my time in New York was all kind of restaurant work, front of house, back of house, managing, serving uh, a bit of everything. And then I took to food writing, uh, interning, and then kind of on staff uh, for Sever as their digital staff writer for a bit um, and sort of left the city uh, as my last job as, as a writer um, and landed up here in the Hudson Valley and now run a, a cafe with my my wife and business partner. Very nice. Dan. Yeah, so kind of add on to Craig there. We met probably all, almost over 10 years ago now, uh, working in food and beverage. Uh, I continue to work in food and beverage here in New York City. Um, besides doing this amazing book, I, I have a consulting business that does human resources for uh, hospitality businesses and all the nitty gritty back end stuff to restaurants that nobody wants to do, but it's still very important. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, uh, pretty nice little mention there in the front of your book. You you are apparently Kara Newman's go-to person when she has a question about cider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I was in one of her books for uh, some cocktails and things like that back back then. Mm -hmm. uh, no, great. Yeah. And for, for a long time, I, I back in 2015, I opened up, I helped open up a sale, which was a cider-focused restaurant and bar. Um, and kind of from there, kind of really got fully immersed into the cider world in a really intense way. Um, and that restaurant closed in 2017, that restaurant closed, but it was a good run for a few years. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this book is a little bit different than some of the texts that we uh, normally feature in that it is over 300 pages. It is, uh, I mean, I'm not saying nothing to bash any of the other books that we've had on uh, the show, but it is, it, it's a bit more of a tome. It's a bit more of a, uh, sort of a, a, a cross between a, a history and, um, I, I guess, a, a, a really specific region by region stepwise look at what cider is, how it evolved. And, and so in that respect, it, it's, it's a bit intimidating, but there, I, I think we can, we can pull out some of the, the key themes here at, as we go along. Um, so why don't you both kind of take me through how you individually came to really love apples and then how uh, your love for and appreciation of uh, the ferments and distillates that comes from these lovely fruits led you to conceive American cider? We both come from a background of, of wine. We both worked in Italian wine for many years. Um, and one of the interesting things about cider um, kind of really, we're kind of really hooked me. It's kind of, it's, unknown and it's 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 unknown is the presumed discovery that's really taking place right now especially here in the united states so much of like the established wine culture that we were operating with it was all about like kind of relearning things that people had already taught and already learned just kind of reading out of books and um just kind of like absorbing information that had already been taught and nothing was new new stuff was happening but it was still it was somewhat distant and not necessarily representative of what we were at access to. Um, and so cider is fascinating because of its, uh, because of the cutting edge is happening right now, right here. And it's so much of it, it's still really unknown. Like we don't know half of anything like of what apples and cider could possibly do in this country. So really that kind of like pursuit of discovery and exploration really kind of got into me and, and got me super curious about, about how to, about how, how cider works, how apples work, and, and, how, and how this community works. So once you get involved in the cider community, that's what I can say. It's hard to get out, and it's, it's a really fun and exciting community to be a part of. Exactly how I got here. Um, the opportunity for the book came to Dan uh, and through Dan's connections, and Dan didn't have much of a writing experience. And so because I did, he asked me to help him on the project, and that's kind of how I got hooked. Um, but again, Dan's work at Wasale kind of, he, he was introduced to the national community and uh, it, it's a very fascinating and supportive and humble community. Uh, and so it, I very much like people as much as I like fermented beverages and apples. And for me, the project kind of, it, it sunk and it stuck to my soul because of the human element. Um, you know, apples can exist without us, but it's kind of the relationship with humans and apples that that I find fascinating. And like Dan said, the, the, the category of cider is, is 
shifting. And we have even made jokes since the book uh, was submitted that we could probably already write a second edition just because of all that's changed since then. Yeah, I, I love the idea of getting into cider because it has relatively high cap space in terms of what there is to to, to learn and to, to continue to make progress on relative to uh, the wine world, which I think is probably the best comparison, uh, although it is certainly a certainly not a one-to-one -one comparison. You know, we can we can speak about terroir with apples and with grapes. We can speak about um, you know different varietals, perhaps um, different sort of bigger buckets that those varietals then fall into. Um, so I think there's a lot to to compare, but but uh, I'm I, I think like you, I'm I'm primarily interested in in the differences between the the wine world and the cider world because. Uh, you know, like uh, you go to a restaurant and who comes to the table? Uh, well, a sommelier, not an apple sommelier, right? So it's a grape, it's a wine sommelier, not an apple sommelier. So um, th there's there's definitely a huge difference in my mind between the cider world and the the wine world. And and hopefully as we as we go here, we can kind of pick out some of those nuances and, and share them with our, our listeners, um, because our, our listeners do tend to be the curious folks, the people who go out of their way to to try new things, as opposed to just sitting with the same bottle that they've enjoyed for for years and years. So um, what what was the, I guess, ultimate project of American Cider? Like what, what is maybe not the thesis, but what, what is it designed to to teach and um, you know, did that did that project evolve as as you as you wrote it? Yeah, I would say the primary thesis is to provide context for what's happening today, and the kind of provide context and provide a record for what's going on today because the cider industry has changed a lot in the last ten years, and we it, it so much of the so much of the narrative that was taking place is about was like was looking back to an earlier history. And like, it wasn't necessarily lining up, like what I was learning and finding out as a intense cider person versus what the marketing narrative was coming out with a lot of cideries didn't quite line up all the way. And I wanted this to basically provide context for like the cider community today. So, so that somebody could enjoy this book, pick it up, read it. And it's not necessarily for the first time cider drinker, but for somebody who is engaged in beverage to like, learn this context and that these new even though cideries are only three or four years old that the products they're making are not out of a vacuum but they're from this um, tradition and this culture mm -hmm. and, and because that was sort of a daunting task to to try to frame that uh in a digestible way for readers we sort of decided to break it down into the eight regions that the book is in and those regions are basically where where there has been uh, an apple and cider, cider culture since you know Europeans came here and where those cultures still remain and and sort of how today is standing on the foundation laid by yesterday to 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 provide this product for for today's consumers. So I hope in the text we kind of linked back the history that we talk about. We took about very select histories of each each part of the country um, and then linked those back to what's happening today to the idea of like this so it's not a comprehensive. We don't talk about every set. There's a thousand producers of cider in the United States today. We don't talk about all of them, but the ideas we talk about, the ones we do talk about, we link, we link back to this earlier history, whatever that happened to be. Yeah. And I think that maps on, right? Because, you know, whether you're talking about the beer world, the spirits world, the cocktail world, we, we see two sort of perhaps contradictory impulses, right? We see the impulse to link your brand or your product back to a tradition that existed perhaps during something like a golden age of cocktails back from the 1890s to the 1920s, uh, or, you know, a spirits making tradition kind of similar to that. Uh, or we see the contrary impulse to maybe do something that pushes the envelope about of, of what we've seen thus far. And, and you know, we, we can maybe think of, you know, the the bars and the bartenders who've done more of like the molecular mixology in, in that space recently. Um, so it, it makes sense that there's going to be a similar thing with cider, right? There, there's a lot of like, again, as you said, cap space to do new things. And yet um, there's, there, there's a lot of history that, that people aren't familiar with. Uh, now, 
one one place that I, I really want to pause right now is your maps. Can you talk to me about the maps that you included in this book? Uh, how did you decide on that style? Like, what, how are the maps designed to inform uh, the text? Because I'm a map guy and I love books with maps. So, so the maps were were done by this guy Jim Sly, who um, is formerly was a sommelier here in New York City for a long time. And I I, I first knew him originally because he used to be a sommelier at a restaurant called. Uh, Pro and Ash on the Bowery, which was like very, uh, it was a very like sceny, influential wine place, um, probably like in 2013 to 2000, and I think it closed in maybe 16 or 17. Um, and I met him, he first came, because I was pretty close to West Hill, he used to come to, after work, and I knew him from there. He now has this whole thing post COVID of like these online wine classes called Children's Wine Atlas, which is Really amazing. Jim's a great educator and a really awesome uh, dude. And I, he, I, I talked to him like, hey, I want these maps. I, I like the way he messes with scale and messes with um, to kind of tell a story. And they're very much um, they look like the kind of like young adult fantasy novel uh, maps, which is kind of what I, I don't know. <laughs> they were great. Yeah, I, I really like him, and I, I, I didn't, I didn't recognize that whole messing with scale that you're referencing but but now that i think about it they are kind of almost stretched out in a way that, that might make it feel like you're viewing them on a curved surface like a globe um and they, they do a good job you know so I'm, I'm thinking of uh your your new york maps for example so you have you know a map of the finger lakes region and then you have uh, a map of you know long island and more of south central new york um you know where angry orchard for example is is doing a lot of their work um and it, it's great um i i think that the the impulse to map is really important here because unlike the you know unlike the wine world, uh, perhaps the European wine world, where wine regions, maybe not in reality, but but seem to abut one another. You can't go somewhere in France without stepping uh, over a line between, um, you know, one region and another region that's right next to it, perhaps. But these regions seem like there's a little bit more space between them. And so it's useful as we transition, I think, from space to space to have these maps to set the tone so that when you you make a reference to a particular type of apple or a particular growing region or uh, some of the, ge the geology, right, there are various escarpments and, and soil types that are referenced in these maps and in the text as well. It's great to be able to just flip back a couple pages and, and find it with your finger and say like, ah, right there. Okay, that's what they're talking about. Um, so I think the maps for me are almost like a character in this book uh, or characters multiple. Uh, so I, I really enjoy that. Um, but uh, I guess if there's if there's uh, if that's a good summary of the map, um, uh, is, is there any way we can can talk a little bit about how uh, as time flows from the past to the present and our country was settled from east to west uh how these different cider regions maybe evolved uh in, in in a high level way yeah so i guess sort of like preliminary info to kind of understand the proliferation of apples in the country is that apples don't grow true from seed so you plant an apple seed of say granny smith and you don't get a granny smith apple um so in that that truth is uh, Europeans were coming here and settling here. They came from these apple cultures. So they brought seeds with them because they're lightweight. They don't take up space. They can survive the voyage, yada, yada. Uh, and they plant them when they get to the, the new, the, you know, the new coast. Uh, and so what comes up is all these unique varieties, unique to the world and to the regions where they were. Uh, and then people sort of, you know, rely on those as kind of this familiar notion of what, what was from home. Um, but they were just very much a part of, you know, from the early 17th century, uh, very much a part of the, you know, the new founding country's fabric. Um, through time, you just sort of, these things become more understood. Uh, you know, we start, the book starts in the South, um, the Southeast, and for various reasons, which Dan can kind of, you know, go into, there was larger plantation systems there. Uh, the need for slavery and dentured servitude. Um, so you had these big swaths of land and you had aristocratic elites that were owning most of this land. And so uh, 
that sort of was in tandem with more subsistence farmers who didn't have access to wealth and to knowledge. And so those two early cider drinking experiences were very different. Um, I guess just to kind of follow the book briefly, we just go up to the Northeast. The Northeast is much rockier. It's much smaller. There's not swaths of flatland. So you have smaller orchards. Uh, you still have these seedling apples. Um, but in the Northeast, because of the tight space, the lack of land, but they're, you know, waterways and things, you have uh, the development of markets. And so markets start to... Industrialization. Sure. Um, so, you know, these are just sort of like, you know, it is sort of challenging to, to summarize uh, succinctly, and hopefully I'm not rambling, but basically right. in e each region, there are developments in agriculture and these things influence and inform uh, what apples people are planting and the cider that comes from those. As Europeans move from east to west across the country, they like they basically do what they know, and it's not necessarily good or bad. Like, it's not necessarily they do. People do what people farm what they know, and not necessarily in the best way possible. To wherever European when Europeans go, east, go west, they put in they they grow wheat and dairy cows, um, and apples kind of is a second the second thing after that. And there definitely is a the history is very much about people trying to make money and it's about people in the 19th century is all about people trying to, to make money and, and cider uh, was a part of that for a little bit, but by 1840, it's not really anymore. Um, and cider is effectively out of the mainstream by, by the mid 19th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting how cider uh, and, and apple ferments and distillates are, you know, they, they sort of experienced a, a dark age uh, for lack of a, a better term. And uh, is there any way that you can help our listeners understand why that is? Uh, I know I know that it does have some ties to things that we've spoken about before on this podcast, like the temperance movement, like prohibition. But it seems like the, the, the dark age that apples and uh, cider experienced was actually uh, beginning to to take hold before that. Um, so so can, can you help us understand yeah. why that happened? So, so yeah, so so it's basically economics, basically, um, growing cider prices were 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 low and cheap. It was a cheap product for most most part. So if you're growing fruit for for if you're growing fruit in the 18th century or the 19th century, you're you're like today your most valuable thing you can grow it for is for fresh consumption. So if you're putting in a you're putting in a 10 acre orchard. You're you're gonna make your best money by selling the fruit for somebody to eat. The same the same today. If you have hundred acres of apple trees, your first you're, you make much more money selling at the grocery store than you do selling it for for cider. So the drive and the push is really to grow for fresh for fresh fruit, especially on a commercial scale. So places like in Western New York and in uh, Gettysburg, it's all about processing, but it's all about those are all value added products that people do that were basically or dried apples in Sebastopol were made more money for the farmers and had a higher value to them than cider ever would. So those, so people who were putting in farms and orchards did them for purposes that were definitely not for cider because that was the least return on their investment. Mm -hmm. And there's, a, there's a, a parallel too, just with people leaving the rural countryside, which is where you need the space for orchards um, as people are settling closer to kind of like developed towns urban centers, it just sort of cider made much less sense in the American fabric. Yeah, it's easier to make, if you're if you're a um, upstart city like, like Milwaukee, it's a lot easier to brew beer in the city to deliver to everybody who's working in, in the city than it is to bring make cider. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, it doesn't make any sense to bring apples into the city to make cider there to then distribute. It's just a lot, it's a lot easier to just, like, bring in, bring in grains, ferment beer, and hand it out then. It's just a lot a lot simpler and easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I'm hearing some echoes here uh, from a Tales of the Cocktail seminar I attended uh, a year and a half ago uh, about apple distillates. And w the one striking fact that I took away from that seminar was the uh, the the amount of money it costs to produce uh, a liter or whatever volume of uh, grain-based distillate relative to a fruit-based distillate, oh, yeah. and it, it's it's ridiculous. It's it, it's something like 
like four to eight times more expensive to produce a fruit distillate than a grain distillate. And yet when you walk into the store, you know, you pick up a bottle of Laird's Applejack and then you pick up a bottle of whiskey and you look at the price tags and they're like pretty close. Like there's no yeah, eight crazy. times multiplier on it. So, so it, it's just, is it, is it more of a, a passion project for people who are uh, dedicated to producing ciders and innovating and really diving deep on the history of the ciders in their region? Are they propelled more by a, a passion for the product than a desire to, to make money? I think it's both. Like people are trying to find sustainable businesses for themselves in Especially in rural environments, and, and um, I think a really important part in the last few years has been the uh, influence of, re of re the regenerative agriculture movement, uh, especially here in the Northeast and in California and definitely the Northwest as well. And those, or even like first of all, regenerative agriculture and people trying to people starting farms to um, create products that can make the farm sustainable. And if you're having a small farm, cider is a product that you can potentially make on a small scale and sell commercially and it can it can make sense and it can be it can be a viable business um so i think a lot some people approach it from the land stewardship angle but they, they can do this as a way to help preserve the land and, and and make a rural agricultural business sustainable and viable because um other terms of kinds of farming are not necessarily sustainable or, or viable like just vegetable farming's a lot of work and really intensive and not necessarily profitable. Um, and this is something they can do to do that. Or on the other hand, people are fine or tapping into existing resources. So places like in the Northwest or in Cal, actually everywhere kind of the people grow apples, the largest thing they're more people grow apples and make cider are tapping into existing resources. So like in Western New York, there's this giant swaths of orchard that go to moths. And people can just tap into that mott supply and make cider out of it instead, and maybe offer maybe offer them some more money to it. In the last few years, those big growers are are actually starting to plant more um, cider varieties because they see that as a potential market, and they can get more for their for their crop. They grow golden russet than if they grow uh, Fuji for the for for, for moths. Right, right. Um, well, you brought up this distinction between cider apples and what we can call food apples or eating apples, um, whether that's going to be apple juice, applesauce, fresh apples to eat from your hand. Uh, I wonder if you can give our listeners an understanding of what distinguishes a quote cider apple uh, from the ones that they can walk into the grocery store and, and pick up off of the apple pyramid. Grocery store apples are, they're designed in they're bred for fresh eating and sort of exclusively that. So you want juice, you want sugar, you want snap, you want crisp, you want that, you know, the sensation of biting into an apple. You know, they're kind of, they're one dimensional in that sense. Cider apples have a lot more complexity to them. Uh, and kind of to go back to the comparison to wine, uh, you have tannin and acid in apples, just like you do in grapes. Uh, and these things come from the flesh and from the skin and the juice there's a, an analogy I always like to use is you don't see Merlot grapes at the grocery store and you don't ferment with Thompson seedless grapes. So the same is true for apples. You don't see, say, uh, depending on where you are, you don't tend to see like Harry Masters Jersey at the grocery store or Ashmead's Colonel. You know, it's it's Macintosh, Cortland Empire, the, the, the few that we all know. Um, it, so cider fruit to that end is just more complex polyphenols the science of it is something i'm not familiar with but there's more going on when those things are fermented that they express themselves in much more nuanced and complex ways at the same time uh there are different camps on you know fermenting these apples like macintosh um granny smith and, and what those bring to the table just like they're very aromatic to eat uh, you know fresh out of hand those aromatics tend to come through in cider so you don't you know, it's, it's cider makers are still kind of finding the balance of what they like to ferment and produce versus what the consumer wants. Um, but also kind of the balance between, you know, either single varietal uh, Kingston black cider or something that's got uh, dessert fruit blended into it. So all, all apples can be fermented and make cider, of course. Uh, and there's kind of a nuance and, and a, a delicate a dance to, to find a balance of, of complexity and, and aroma and all the, you know, great things that make cider. 
And then in the cider world, there, there are varieties that are specifically grown and raised and bred to make cider with, whether that has to say tannins or acid or polyphenol, whatever. They're not, they're not meant to, to eat out of hand. So like in places like England, they have actually have a, a, a massive surplus of cider, of cider apples, which don't really have any other market value besides uh, going into cider. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, well, here we have a lot more. Uh, eat, like, we have a lot more eating apples that some of them make it make make for good cider. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So it's it's not it's not that you can't take a like a Macintosh, for example, and and use it in a cider. It's just that that just needs to be kind of an intentional decision relative to the other uh, types of apples that you're perhaps blending into into your cider. Yeah. And I, I like the uh, the four large buckets in the book that that uh, that you present for us. There's uh, sharp and sweet apples, uh, referring to sugar and acidity, uh, malic acid, of course, being the type of acid that we're dealing with primarily with maybe a, a little bit of ascorbic acid in there. Uh, and then you have the further, uh, I guess, uh, development of those in bitter, sharp and bitter sweet apples. And so you, you present a two by two matrix that just allows us to walk up to any apple, look at how much sugar, acid and tannins it contains, and then uh, being able to kind of place that on its place in the map. So um, I, I, that was particularly useful for me as I you know, try to put on my cider makers glasses and say like, well, it, you know, if I'm about to go into this project of making a cider, um, you know, what, are, what is the decision tree that I'm going to follow? So um, having obviously worked with a lot of these ciders, these cider makers, um, how would you kind of explain to our listeners the process of developing a cider as 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 a, a product with a specific flavor profile and and like if if you were a cider maker like presented with this project of putting a new product to market right now like what what are the steps that you need to go through um to develop that flavor um well the most important part is, is figuring out your sourcing it's like where where's your apple coming from whether it is um you're buying that from bulk juice from the northwest from washington state or that's buying from um, a local, local orchard where we happen to be. And those orchards are going to have relatively different apples depending on where you are in the country. Like here in, here in New York State, we have lots of, in Hudson Valley, we have tons of like Fuji's and Galas and things like that that are meant for fresh market consumption. I think crazy like Macintosh and Corlands. While in Western New York, they have a surplus of, of Northern Spy that used to go to Mott's. Um, that's a really great cider variety that's um, also good for making pies and things like that. And same, same in Michigan. Michigan and Western New York have pretty similar apple varieties. Um, so I think it's about understanding what, what your resources are in terms of like where you're sourcing your product from, um, raw materials. And then from there, you can use those to kind of dictate what your blend's going to taste like. Um, and I think for the large part, you can't... Cider apples need... need um, making cider, you can influence the taste of them, but you really can't change their flavor profile and things like that. So you need to like, um, yeah, so it's first sourcing and then figuring out where to, um, uh, what kind of cider you're gonna make from there. Uh, in, in your processing, your barrel aging or um, fermenting an oak or going with a malolactic, how you're sparkling it. Um, those are all choices you need to make, but it all starts with where your apples come from and what you're using. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so I think it's it's very tempting to to talk about varietals with apples just because you know they have such fun names and and uh, interesting morphologies and colors. But uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about terroir because there's there's just a, a a bit of a difference when you think about wine, for example, where you've got these grapes and you know we have the history of winemakers intentionally quote unquote, stressing the vine so that they dive deeper into the ground and suck up more of those different minerals and, and the, uh, the water from, from whatever the native aquifer happens to be, uh, as opposed to thinking of an apple tree, which is, it's just a different organism absorbing nutrients and uh, other aspects of terroir differently than, than a grapevine would. So is there a, is there a, a different way to think about apple terroir as opposed to grape terroir, or is it largely kind of like a similar thing? 
you get the weather, you get the soil, you get a you get a, a, a touch of human intervention, and and that's your terroir for that region. It's pretty similar uh, in terms of what you just said about like the stresses and things like that. I would I would add to that though, like research is still out. Like we we don't exactly know how to best grow these varieties. Um, like Cornell is doing a lot of work right now in terms of like understanding like how to prune them and like like if you maybe that Harry Mesh Jersey needs a different style of pruning and, and maintenance than like a Fuji would. Um, and that like growing apples for cider is maybe different than growing apples for, 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 for fresh eating. And they have different needs in understanding that thing. Like when, and that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, and I, I think when thinking about cider though, in addition to that, we also have to think about the human element and kind of where that culture comes about from. Uh, and where those um, where that cider come where that cider exists in terms of the market, because it's not like um, I, part of my terroir rant usually includes that the like from someone who worked in Italian wine for many years, uh, Italian wine always presents itself as being this immortal, timeless beverage, which is the most like terrible bullshit you've ever heard. Like those are all. Like Italian wine we drink today is definitely not the Italian wine that people were drinking 30 years ago. It's definitely not the wine people were drinking 100 years ago. Um, and the, but but they've sold it to us as like this is the way we've always done things. This is how it did. This is and it's like the most amazing amount of bullshit that everyone drinks. It's pretty great. So um, in cider world, I always think um, Nat West of of Revan Nat Cidery in in Portland, Oregon. He makes a lot of intensely flavored ciders that uh, are very process driven well he'll like um take grape apple juice and make it like some he'll go to breweries and make it like they're double like they're doing on ipas or he'll take things and age them over odd things for a long period of time he's like we talked to him the book he was like oh I'm over flavors like i'm all about weird processes now of how we do things and um he but his idea is that like well yeah but i'm from Portland, oregon here and Part of the terroir for Oregon is beer and innovation and weird. Like I can go to Portland, I can drink delicious, well-made lagers, crazy IPAs, and the best sour beers in the entire world. And so, like, of course, that's going to have an influence on how cider is presented and how we contextualize that culture. And it's, it's super important to realize. And I think, and when looking at the rest of the country, it's the same thing. Like looking at 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 the beer culture in Michigan and to how the, how their ciders are presented there. Uh, and the resources that exist there from these giant old processing orchards that were that make uh, apple pies, frozen apple pies, and now make cider, like that has an important influence and onto what the ciders actually are, not just like because of how the soil is. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it seems like, um, you know, I'm making I'm making an assumption here, uh, but it seems like uh, yeast is also uh, a, a fertile place to, to play around. I mean, uh, there's the two types of, uh, you know, yeast approaches you can take are obviously, um, you know, wild fermentation and the more controlled fermentation using, using a particular strain or perhaps even a particular strain that is proprietary to, uh, a given cidery. Uh, is there anything going on in the yeast space, uh, that, that our listeners should know about in terms of, um, you know, going out and visiting a cidery and, and being able to contextualize like the way that they're going about fermenting this beverage? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, Yeast is a thing. It's definitely less of a thing than it is in the both more of a thing and less of a thing than it is in the in, in the in the beer in the beer world uh, or in the wine world. People, it, like it's very much a thing. People are very much passionate and opinionated about about their processes and which they, what they use. Um, and like last week at at SaturnCon, which was the annual annual convention last week, um, which is all remote, somebody presented. Um, this guy Lee, Lee Reeves, who's um, a Japanese cider importer in Japan, uh, he presented this like uh, cider that was made from Bartlett pears that was fermented with uh, uh, wasp yeast that was cultivated. That was like pretty weird. I've never known. And I, like I looked it up, there's like there are like some weird uh, beers made from yeast wasp yeast, which is weird. Um, but it's it's a mixed space. I don't know, Craig. What do you think about yeast yeast stuff? Uh, I th yeah, I think 
and there's probably something to be said. We we didn't really. Uh, we were less focused on process for this book. Yeah, yeah, but there there's probably something to be said that you know if somebody's making a relatively small batch of cider, say it's two thousand gallons or whatever, and that's their livelihood. Um, you may find a higher likelihood of pitching yeast to secure that product and make sure you don't lose money and so you can pay your bills. Um, but there's also kind of just the ethos that, you know, the, the term natural, you know, natural winemaking or cider making of just kind of native yeasts, letting them ferment uh, naturally. Uh, the argument that it sort of preserves some of the more inherent flavors in the apple um, comes down to, I think, just cider maker philosophy um, about whether to pitch or not. Yeah, it definitely divides the community, but at the same time, like, it was very much an intense point of conversation a few years ago, and I feel like it's less so in the last few years. And I think the biggest thing that's changed in that is the access to apples. Like, we're having more apple conversations now. That, like, a few years ago, people were much more about, like, we're having a yeast conversation because the apple conversation was kind of thick because, like, or it was fixed because they were like, uh, I got apples, whatever I can get, it's what I got, and that's what I'm doing. And now the Apple access has changed the last few years. We're getting better varieties online. Then the focus is not fo has changed a little bit more to focusing more on, on varieties more so than the yeast. It's really interesting to hear you talk about how much is changing. And uh, I guess I guess the, the example that you just gave is, is an example of, of how that change is a little bit unpredictable. Uh, in in some cases, like you know, who a couple of years ago would have predicted that the conversation would now be about varietals as opposed to you know still being on uh, on the on the yeast conversation? So uh, that that's interesting to me, and, and it brings up uh, something that you mentioned in the the kind of the, the wrap up of your book, the conclusion, which is uh, I, I love the the title that you chose, and so dot dot dot, um, a lovely way to 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 sum things up. But in, in that conclusion, you mentioned that cider inhabits uh, a, a liminal space, uh, a, a transitional space. And uh, I, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on on liminality. And, and if you I just I, I just just talk about it, because it seems like it's very important uh, to the way that you both um, sort of uh, agreed to to frame this book. Great that you that you pointed that out. And as you're kind of talking about it, I find myself thinking more about it just from it's sort of coming out when we were writing it and now kind of thinking about it, but yeah, sort of like what we've talked about in the interview here is just how in transition cider is the beverage. Um, it is not, it can be defined currently, but it is in no means definitive. Um, and it's just shifting as people are learning and there's new fruit growing, uh, being put in the ground and it'll grow and you know, the access to fruit will increase and that fruit will vary. And inherently that changes the profile of the cider. So kind of goes back to our shared love of just the community, uh, even outside cider. Uh, it's, it's a collaboration. Um, it, and it's not something that just like one cider maker in state X can just decide and, and uh, define what cider is going to look like in the future. It's this collaborative thing where, uh, you know, farmers are planting trees and people are tending to these orchards and then people are fermenting the juice and the consumer is providing feedback. Um, so it's interesting that there's no, well, there may be a cider making legacy in the country. There's no sort of legacy like you might find in winemaking in, uh, you know, older European countries or even young ones here, like how there's the argument of a, you know, Finger Lakes wine legacy or Sonoma County and the like. We're still very much looking to uh, define cider, but then again, maybe part of cider's definition is that it's not a definable category. Yeah, I'm going to give credit though. We we the liminality for cider is definitely something we, we borrow from from uh, our friend uh, Leif Sundstrom of Sundstrom Cider. He very much like he has a cider called liminal, and it's very much always giving me see that into my brain in terms of like thinking of this in betweenness of, of, of cider, uh, and it doesn't quite fit into where anybody wants it to. Um, and it's constantly changing and constantly evolving. Um, and it's the in-between of kind of expectations. Like it, it, and when people are willing to engage with it too, it's, it's changing and it's, it's evolving. And, and, and I, I, looking back, talking about, talking about varieties now, like, it's, like in the future, we're definitely, the conversations are gonna be framed around not only varieties, but like it's gonna be a terroir conversation. And like, and like we're preparing ourselves for a terroir conversation for like, 
um, not only like what does the cider, what does this variety taste like, but what does this variety taste like when it's grown here? Um, we did, I did, um, I have a talk I've done a couple of times now. Uh, um, our friend Darlene Hayes, who's a researcher, professional, and everything else, um, Renaissance woman out in Sebastopol. And we've done this starting, I think, from something it was 2016, I think we did it for the first time. And we've done it probably like four times since then, um, where we present Newtown Pippin uh, in a lot of different contexts, where basically we will source the apples and ciders made from those apples and we'll taste them all. So in the consolidated, the consolidated version, we have eight apples and eight, we have like six ciders and six apples. And we'll taste them all and recognize the difference between them. Like we'll have, uh, we have two from New York we usually work with. We have one from Virginia, one from Hood River in Oregon, and two from and two from California. And really, like, understand that these they're very different terroir differences between these ciders, even though they're processed in a relatively similar manner, and the apples are grown in a relatively similar are grown differently. You can kind of taste these like interesting. Um, how much the beverages are? It's the same apple, like. You, Newtown Pippin has this like very much like um, baked bread, pear, bright, clean, fruity finish feel to it, but like how it definitely changes depending on where it's grown. Yeah, and it, it varies a lot. And like um, we had a bunch of ciders that our first time we did it, where we sourced like eighteen ciders for, and we all got really drunk. Um, we tasted like four ciders that were all grown in the same orchard in. Um, Bahara Valley in, in outside of in Santa Cruz and how like you could identify like this apple came from this block and like this one was harvested at this date and this one was harvested like three weeks later and it was like just like crazy like the it was very different in terms of how it all like played out and it's um, we've done that talk a few times now and it's been really fascinating to see people's reaction to it and like there's a spectrum of the flavor and like the New York cider start at one end of the spectrum and then it go kind of goes New York, New York style, and the California at the very end, and like there's a spectrum of flavor there, and they're all kind of in the same flavor, but there's a spectrum, which is interesting to see. Yeah, uh, I've I've had a, a similar experience with uh, with agave spirits uh, from uh, with with Lou Bank out of out of Chicago, uh, who was able to kind of set up a similar tasting and and identify, you know, like here's here's two different. Uh, you know, two different um, agave distillates that are made using the same agave varietal, but made in two different places. And so, I think there's there's a lot uh, a lot to be gained by doing that sort of comparison. And I really love that you're you're anticipating and and preempting the the growing trend in uh, in terroir. There, um, I guess, just to summarize what we've what I've been hearing from you two, it, it seems like apples and cider uh especially when compared to like you said the uh the the falsely calcified or or uh falsely uh cut and dry categories of of italian wines let's say uh compared to compared to these very uh cut and dry very boxy um categories and and descriptors that we use in in the wine world it seems like apples are fidgety uh, they don't sit still for us. Uh, they're they, they they're differently difficult to cultivate than than grapes are. And um, you know, going back to our cap space conversation, there's just so much blue sky above us uh, that it's maybe not even necessarily very useful uh, to to try and make hard and fast categories and and uh, and assertions in this space just yet and and I think that that probably makes some people uncomfortable I I could see a lot of uh, a lot of very successful sommeliers getting very frustrated and uh, and a little bit bamboozled by the world of apples uh, so I, I think it's fitting that we're having this conversation right now in this very liminal time uh, in our country's history and culture uh, and and I think you know for me uh, you know, when, when I'm next time I'm at the liquor store or, or cruising the, the online, uh, offerings of, of the various, um, you know, fine beverage importers around me, I'm going to keep my eye out for cider because it seems like an appropriate thing to be thinking about and, and drinking during this time. Um, so, uh, that, that's, that's my big takeaway. And, um, you guys can feel free to comment on that, or I would also love to just wrap up the main portion of the interview by giving some folks at home, 
um, ways that they can start playing around with with cider, whether that's from a strict consumer basis or perhaps um, I know Craig, you've done some some experiments yourself. Um, maybe maybe uh, for our for our fermentation freaks out there, if you can maybe give a, a few tips, that'd be great as well. Yeah, sure. And kind of going back to the first thing you addressed there of just these like more boxy beverage cultures. Um, it's, it's fun to see what these producers are releasing. Uh, like there is no, oh, cool. I can't wait for producer X to release this wine again this year. It's like, oh, let's see what uh, so-and-so decided to work with last fall and is releasing this spring. And it's kind of, you can, you can follow that cider maker's journey through their, you know, what they decide to make. Um, and that's fun. It's very exciting. But like you said, it could make some people uncomfortable. But I think it's more of a continued conversation that's more of a two-way street to engage with the, these differences year after year and provide feedback so everybody can learn versus come to expect the same thing and then sort of take away some of the guesswork. Um, yeah, to hop onto that too, like the American Cider Association put out, I probably be like maybe three or four years ago, put out a style guide that changed every year for a few years. Like, like our style guide, we have like heritage cider and we have modern cider and we have hop cider and flavored cider and like, and they basically like two years ago said like, we can't do that. And Eric, to your point about uh, home home uh, cider making adventures, um, my setup is a, I have a countertop juicer and that is <laughs> that limited I, thing. Yeah, yeah, it's very much obliterates the fruit. Uh, it aerates it quite a bit. Um, I've done no science like testing. This is all just my own curiosities. And living in the Hudson Valley, I have access to amazing uh, fruit in any direction. So I take advantage by buying bushels or two bushels at a time uh, and then juicing it and just letting it ferment naturally just to see sort of how it behaves and, and how it expresses itself. Um, so if somebody, if listeners, you have uh, juicers and curiosity and maybe not access to apples, go to the grocery store and buy apples and juice them and ferment them find a farm stand. And if you have unpasteurized juice, somebody does the crushing and pressing for you, get an airlock, put it over a container, sanitize, keep things clean, let it ferment, taste it along the way. And when it tastes like either uh, vinegar, put it on salad. If it successfully ferments, then drink it with your friends. But yeah, it's, it's fun to kind of just learn. Yeah. The uh, Claude Julicare's new cider maker handbook is definitely the best and the best cider making resource it's like it's something that you could pick up and enjoy and read as an amateur person but like it's also like very useful for tactical te technically um and it's also going to be like a, it's a nice book <laughs> and that's going to be all you need to know about how to make cider that and ben watson's hard cider hard and sweet are there two other ones that's kind of similar um but like we we definitely talk about making cider in the book but we don't focus a lot because we're not cider makers there are much better people who are equipped to, to about how to make cider we're much more about the how to understand it <laughs> yeah uh now just the last follow-up here in terms of somebody who wants to widen their exposure to different american ciders uh is it going to be most useful for them to look for the producers and try and go out of their way to buy them straight from the producers or is it going to be more useful, do you think, to look at, like, pr try and find, like, the best, most high-level liquor store in their region? Because I know that both liquor stores and producers, depending on where they are, are now shipping due to COVID. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, if this process of, of locating interesting ciders has changed uh, since, since the pandemic. Yeah, so I would say for sure, like, retailers are definitely... A great way to start there's definitely some really good brands that are sold across the country especially here in dc there's lots of interesting stuff that gets, that gets into the dc market because all your weird because of all your weird laws there or lack of laws there that i would say definitely the there's a website called um shopsiders.com which is a aggregate service through vino shipper it basically lists every single cider and you can basically you're you're still ordering from Individual producers, but to go way to kind of start and find things that are interesting. It's not necessarily the most, it would take, take some digging, but it's definitely a way to find producers um, and see what's interesting. There are other like local regional ones, like this Press by Press, I think it's called, which is out of Seattle or Portland, but that's like the Northwest and handles like it's an aggregate place for all the Northwest producers. 
the retailer that handles a lot of a lot of that stuff as well. But I, I think buying their pandemic, like producers have definitely switched to making themselves much more DTC as restaurants and wholesale accounts kind of dried up. People are definitely switching to more and more DTC because um, these smaller distributors that are handling cider are definitely the ones that got hurt the most and are the ones having cash flow issues. So cider definitely gets lost in that shuffle. So more and more producers are definitely going as much DTC as possible. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of that now online. You can find lots of cool stuff and it's a great experiment to find things like, and it's fun to like order cider from, we just got a, we just got a, a case of cider um, that Craig's house right now delivered to from, from San Diego, which is really, really exciting. And like, and that's cider that like we would never, the small producer in San Diego, we would never, he would, he, make, he, he barely sells it outside of, of San Diego, he sells it a couple places up, up, up in the Bay area. But like that's it, and like it's really fun to kind of taste those products and buy stuff from like buying stuff from, from Minnesota and from Colorado, these small producers, and, and to really like um, have fun with those things. So that's really where I think what's where it's at right now is there are lots of these small producers doing really interesting stuff, and it's pretty affordable to buy it online still, and it's the shipping isn't that expensive once you aggregate it over like case of a case of wine it's not that much money right right uh i think that's a really really smart point that uh our non-industry listeners won't necessarily um automatically come to uh, about the distributors kind of getting hurt by the pandemic that's definitely something that i've seen here it's you know certainly the case here in, in the mid-atlantic region and so i think you know knowing that and going back to our conversation about the profitability of fruit ferments and distillates that we had earlier in the interview here. Like, I think if I'm looking to not only find the coolest stuff, but also have the, the most positive impact on, um, on the economic side of things, I would certainly be looking to go direct to consumer or go direct to the, the producer as a consumer, uh, to have that positive impact certainly. But, uh, but yeah, there are, there are certainly here in DC, some, some great liquor stores, uh, and, and places like Ace Beverage and, and, uh, Schneider's over on Capitol Hill that do, uh, good work with lots of, lots of different, uh, varied ciders and, and do ship. So, um, we'll have links to some of those books that you mentioned over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcasts. And, uh, of course we will, uh, we'll have links to be able to pre-order, uh, American cider as well. Um, is there anything you guys want to, uh, just mention before we move on to the lightning round here? Cider is a really interesting space and that's a really fun. And once you get sucked in, it's, it's so much fun. The cider, cider people are, are super great and are, are, are really, really cool. Yeah. Shared cause drink more cider. Awesome. All right, first lightning round question. What is your favorite cocktail? After all, this is a cocktail podcast. And if you don't have a favorite cocktail of all time, what's something maybe you've recently fallen in love with? I used to drink a, a lot of Negronis back in the day, and I drink less of them now. Now I drink a lot of like just like Eau de, I drink a lot of Mezcal and Eau de Vie <laughs> straight at night because <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm on a forever quest to find my favorite uh cheap bourbon uh keeps me busy uh it could be a never-ending find and a, a lifelong uh, pursuit but but uh yeah what's your cocktail though new interest in the bicicleta punch did a brought it to my light i hadn't heard of it before but but campari white wine and seltzer sounds right up my alley once it warms up a bit i think i'm gonna uh live off those punch has been i would say like slaying recently with some of their articles about just cocktails that you would not have uh, otherwise heard of. They've been like, <laughs> it's just been a, it's been a parade of hits. So I, I yeah, I, I would, I would recommend that anybody uh, who wants to do some good reading, just head over to punch and see what they've been publishing recently because I've been enjoying it. Um, all right. Is there any product or trend in the beverage world, knowing that you guys were, were both in the beverage world in, in sort of uh, different capacities over the years, any trends recently uh, that you feel are underrated or underappreciated? Uh, rum. That's, that's my thing. That's my, I, I worked briefly with one consulting for a place that had a pretty big rum program a couple years ago. And it was so much fun to like just go through that. And like, I, I, I understand knowledge of it, but like just, going through and tasting all that stuff and like 
finding all these these really interesting things. And Craig and I have a colleague from from an old colleague of ours from Haiti who tells all these stories of these like all these crazy like moonshine operations in Haiti. And and then like when you we, we saw the, the Clarins kind of the market couple years ago, like oh yeah, he's like oh yeah, yeah yeah this is basically what we have at home. It's just like the same thing. Yeah. Um, so and like that's I think underrated and, and underappreciated, especially like now that mezcal is priced where it should be, or still under still undervalued but not as cheap. I think rum is a fun way to get terroir and spirits. Oh yeah. And less so for me, unless I can beat the dead horse and just talk about cider being underrated. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I love rum. And, and I do think, you know, when during our conversation today, I, I did find myself thinking about the agave world and the cane spirit world uh, in terms of, you know, the, the, the slipperiness of terroir. Uh, so so that's interesting. Uh, my, my friend Chase Babcock, who uh, is uh, bringing St. Benevolence Claren to the U.S., uh, he, he talks about uh, different cane varietals as well. And so I think uh, just like the apple varietal conversation is going to be uh, perhaps increasing in volume, I, I think that the cane varietals conversation is also going to be something that we start thinking about and hearing about from the rum world, hopefully in the next couple of years. So um, that's, that's a lot of fun. Cool. Do you have any unusual or controversial beliefs in the beverage world, be it, you know, cider, of course, uh, but we can also extend that to beer, wine, cider, uh, spirits, hospitality in general, any, any controversial or unique views that, that you hold? I was controversial or not at this point in time, but like, I definitely am reacting against the rise of uh, beer that I don't like <laughs> against, against beers that are um, milkshakey or too much, intense like that or the, that style like I, I have a one of the importers here in new york imports amazing delicious small pieces in germany and i drink a lot of that stuff which is much more fun to for me than than um really like as, as we experiment and try these crazy weird things from in the wine world and cider world i do like very classic style beer hmm. and i'll just i'll second that as well just in that like i sort of as i was coming to discover cider and seek it out a bit more. I was kind of in tandem with this like palate fatigue from drinking so many IPAs. I was just, it was a welcomed shift. Of oh, right. I love exploring that stuff, but it's one exploring it in a different, in a different way. Sure, sure. Um, and, and I think in terms of hospitality, like it's, it's changing. Our industry hasn't changed in generations. It's been the same business model and now we're having to change it for the first time ever. So we need to adapt and change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I do, I do tend to agree that we have reached peak milk stout. And if I, I see another beer can with like a, a dessert food on it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull my hair out, but, uh, but yeah. So, um, gents, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I think my takeaway, uh, overall is that, uh, is that cider is, is, um, fun, intimidating, uh, a little, a little weird in some respects, if we put our wine glass, uh, our wine sunglasses on, uh, and, and certainly holds a lot of opportunity as, as we, uh, progress here and, and see more of these fun varietals becoming more available to, to producers and to consumers. So I'm looking forward, uh, to keeping my eye on the cider scene here. Um, I can't recommend uh, your book enough. Uh, the advanced copy that I received was a, a whole lot of fun to go through, especially if, like me, you grew up, uh, you know, reading Tolkien and enjoying maps in books. Uh, I think they'll they'll really get a kick out of what you were able to put together. Uh, how can people uh, best pick up a, a copy of this book or, or pre-order it? Uh, I know I know that there are a couple different ways to do, to go about that. Yeah, um, you can go to uh, I'm at Penguin at Penguin Random House. They have a selection of, of books retailers you can collect from. You can anyone sells it Barnes and Noble, Amazon. The local bookstore will buy it. Can sell it to you as well. Or if you like Indigo, um, they'll all purchase purchase it. Um, and then in terms of other stuff, we do have a really cool. We started like a social media account, Instagram account called. We actually got American Cider or America underscore Cider. It has lots of interesting. That we're posting to like really inter interesting. Um, deep dives into different parts of cider uh, and going into that a little more, more in depth um, about either like, I think we're doing one this week about, I know something about um, the fail orchards of Montana and the boom, boom and bust of those things, which are one of our, one of the, one of the weirder stories we found along the way. Yeah. Fascinating. Frank Lloyd Wright was involved. It's cool. It's really neat. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, uh, head on over to that Instagram account, uh, American underscore cider. And we'll have links to not only that account, uh, not only to the uh, Penguin Random House uh, aggregate of all the places where you can pick up your copy of American Cider, but also to some of the resources and things that we mentioned here as well. Um, so Dan and Craig, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Cool. Thanks, Eric. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was produced by Edie Frederick with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Apple and Cider Insights, courtesy of Craig Cavallo and Dan Pucci, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.